Ah, it's Maria. Welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday, the 18th of October. Call Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we're going to go to London soon to find out if Liz Truss can hang on to the British Prime Ministership. A report in the Middlemore Hospital's emergency department has described it as dysfunctional, overcrowded and unsafe. Sarah Dalton from the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists joins us before six. National won't rule out working with New Zealand First at the next election. And the new Mayor of Invercargill, Nobby Clark, tells us about his life of service. 25 years ago, sort of got into Buddhist philosophy and, uh, and part of that is that you, you use your life to be able to help other people as opposed to being um, a little bit more self- narcissistic about things. Maria, welcome to First Up, busy show today. I'm Nathan Rarere and we begin this morning uh, in the chaos of Westminster. Joining me now from London is our correspondent Henry Riley. We've got a beautiful relationship, Henry. A couple of years, um, about 21 goals by a, a young fellow called Erling Haaland and what are we up to now? Four chancellors together, you and I? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it is four actually now. That's right. Yeah, it's nice. It's fun. We'll talk about it when we're old. Tell me about this heated debates in the British Parliament today, and tell us about the new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. Has he hit the ground running? I've kept my phone on in case I get the call up to be Chancellor at some point later this week. By the way, um, so it's been a chaotic day in the UK to say the least. Um, Jeremy Hunt was appointed as the Chancellor on Friday, a real shock candidate in many ways. He backed Rishi Sunak for leader, Liz Truss's rival, and is now effectively the number two in the government. Um, he wasn't even a minister. I mean, he hasn't been a minister for, for a while, it has to be said, uh, for, for a number of years. And he has a completely different economic vision to Liz Truss. But he is now the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And indeed, to get a sense of where the UK mood is at the moment, the main question he was asked, because he did some broadcast interviews on Saturday and Sunday over the weekend, and he was asked, who's in charge? Is it the Prime Minister or is it you? Because it seems like you're in charge. And the general sense is that, and and I had it described to me that actually Liz Truss is almost like the chairman of the country, whereas Jeremy Hunt is the CEO. And the reason I make that distinction is the chair is still an extremely, extremely important post, but Jeremy Hunt's the one actually making the decisions and actually making the sort of key day-to-day running of the government, which is a pretty peculiar uh, uh, situation to be in. And today has been a day of simply waiting uh, and seeing how long the government can last. There's been speculation all day. And, you know, how many times do we speak, Nathan, when this happened with Boris Johnson, when there were stories of conservative MPs sending in letters of no confidence in yes, the prime yes. minister? We're being told that that's happening already. We're being told that they're going to have cabinet resignations at some point in the next 48 hours. It's being rumoured. It's being rumoured that Liz Truss may not be able to finish the week as prime minister. It is absolute chaos. And uh, you mentioned about Jeremy Hunt hitting the ground running. So he has revealed essentially today that he agrees with almost nothing from that mini budget that Kwasi Kwarteng, the former chancellor, three weeks ago, uh, announced uh, he agrees with virtually none of that and gave an emergency statement uh, this morning. This is so he could get it in nice and early before the markets uh, uh, opened. Um, sorry, just after the markets opened, but he could do it at a, at a sooner date than before the House of Commons. And in a nutshell, I mean, he scrapped the basic rate of income tax, 
being cut. It was due to go down from uh, 20% to 19%. That's now not happening. Corporation tax due to go up from 19% to 25%. That's now not happening. Uh, we knew that the top rate of income tax being cut uh, w was going to be stopped. He's confirmed that's not happening. Various tax measures uh, that were going to sort of uh, uh, cut ta taxes dramatically have been scrapped. And it's a completely different economic plan from, uh, from the same looking government other than a different chancellor. So this is a double move by Liz Truss. One, to try and reassure markets. Two, to you know try and hold her position as Prime Minister, I would say. Uh, it doesn't sound, Henry, like you're that confident that she uh, retains that role as the Prime Minister. No, and look, Jeremy Hunt has an important role because he, he's not without controversy, it must be said. He was the longest-running health secretary we've had in the UK, but he was engaged in quite a bitter dispute with junior doctors. And so he, he's not exactly a, a sort of controversy-free character, but he is seen as a unity character. He's a compassionate conservative, as he would describe it. It's a phrase that he used over the weekend. He's not seen as being on the extreme right uh, of the party. And actually, you know, we, we're now, we, I mean, at some point today we were up to five MPs publicly calling for trust to go, which considering she's, I think, 42 days into her premiership is quite extraordinary. And it's a level that certainly can't be maintained. Um, many people are sort of waiting and seeing what happens. Financial markets have welcomed. They've reacted positively to the uh, the new co of costly measures. Their main concern was um, borrowing on the never never to pay for these tax cuts and the fact that Jeremy Hunt has said these tax cuts aren't going to happen has reassured the financial market. It must be said the uh, pound against the dollar has been strong. It was up by almost a cent and a half earlier today, stood above $1.13 which is pretty good compared to what it was. Sterling also against the euro at one sixteen uh, at one point today as well, which is higher than we've seen it. Just to put that in context, against the dollar we did fall below $1.09 uh, at some point last week. So it, it is... Um, moving in the right direction it's fair to be said but there's a lot of concern in the uk as to, as to what is actually going on i mean you know jeremy hunt's been in the house of commons this afternoon answering questions uh in front of mps mo mostly opposition mps but you know some disgruntled tories as well we've had one of the cabinet ministers penny mordant answering questions and liz truss has been sat in the chamber She's now left the chamber, actually, in the last five minutes, I've seen. And people have been asked, sort of, where has she been? And all we know is that she was detained on urgent business, whatever that means. We'll have to wait and see exactly what that means. But it does seem very much like a rudderless government at the moment. No one knows who's steering the ship. But one thing that is for, is for sure is it doesn't look like Liz Truss is in charge. No. Uh, thank you very much indeed. That is uh, Henry Riley, who joins us every week out of the UK. Interesting times there. It is 11 and a half past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National. At least eight people have died in Russian drone attacks against Ukraine. The attacks by so-called kamikaze drones hit critical infrastructure in three regions. The drones are similar to a design manufactured in Iran. However, Iran, uh, Iran has denied supplying the weapons. The BBC's Paul Adams is in Kyiv. Ukraine's capital under attack again. The drones came thick and fast. Of 28, five got through. One tore this elegant century-old apartment building in two. Half of it is gone. People were just getting up. We heard shooting right from uh, our underground parking to drones. We saw how this whole suit looks like something. 
think it's terrible. It's like a terrorist act. I heard it at six in the morning. I couldn't sleep all couldn't sleep all morning, and then I heard the second one. It just comes out of nowhere. You know, people are running all over the place, and they don't know what to do, where to hide anymore. It's been a few hours since the explosion here in the middle of the city, but as you can see, there's still frantic rescue work going on. We know that one person died here. There may well be more. This is the second time in a week that the center of Kiev has been hit. For one elderly resident, a narrow escape, her balcony just a few feet from the impact. But three people died here, including a young couple, the woman six months pregnant. Everything what happens right now in our hometown, it's just terror, it's terror attack. It's here in historical center, live unguilty civilians. They less people freezing in the winter, less people uh, do it without electricity. They need, the Russians want to make the humanitarian catastrophe in our hometown. And this, a piece of one of the weapons used, Iranian-made so-called kamikaze attack drones. Low-flying, hard to shoot down. Russia has used hundreds in recent weeks. In Kiev, they call them mopeds. One of the buildings hit today housed offices of Ukraine's national energy company. Infrastructure facilities were hit outside the capital too. Moscow's assault on the fabric of daily life goes on. That was uh, the BBC's Paul Adams. It is 14 minutes past five and you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Anytime you want to send your thoughts in, we'd love to hear them, 2101. We can email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Many things to talk about uh, this morning. Cargill's new mayor, we're going to also talk about the state of the uh, um, um, emergency department at Middlemore. Maybe you've had a wait or too long a wait or just decided to go home recently. Uh, You can let us know about that, 2101. However, right now it's time to get the latest from Japan with Chris Gilbert. Uh, When I spoke to Chris started uh, talking about why the Japanese Prime Minister avoided a visit to the Yusukuni Shrine in Tokyo. Yasukuni Shrine, if you don't know, is a shrine which is in central Tokyo and it kind of enshrines the souls of a bunch of Japan's war dead. The controversy comes in that it also enshrines the souls of 14 convicted war criminals from the World War II in uh, China and Korea. And so it's become somewhat of a political symbol now that if a leader or a prime minister goes to Yasukuni Shrine, they're kind of making a statement where they kind of like want to prod China or North Korea a bit, be a bit provocative and a bit antagonistic. Mm. Uh, Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister, did this in 2013, absolutely ticking everybody off, including the Americans, because the Americans are like, hey, we want to build an ally with you in South Korea, pretty much against the Chinese. Can you stop visiting this shrine and annoying everybody, please? I guess in a move to show that his intentions, uh, the current prime minister, Fumio Kishida, has not attended this year for its autumn festival yasakuni shrine the war the war crime shrine is holding an autumn festival um and the 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 prime minister is like uh yeah nah no thanks not going to that one and sent an offering in place i guess to appease the nationalists in his own party but yeah is not attending himself which is news because it shows that his intentions are somewhat you know, not the same as his predecessor, and he doesn't want to tick anybody off like Abe did. And also in line with the United States, who wants to, you know, build a formation, Beyonce style, around China with these countries like South Korea and Japan.
<laughs> hey Chris, when I go to French restaurants, I think shallots, creamy sauces, and googling to find out if what I'm eating is actually cheval. Uh, I don't expect <laughs> brawls going on. Tell me about yeah. this brawl in a French restaurant on the 58th story of a Tokyo Tower. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to twirl my uh, my curly mustache and put on a terrible <laughs> accent right now. So yeah, this isn't. By the way, this is an ikibukuro, okay? And so an ikibukuro is a tower called Sunshine 60. And this was on the 58th floor of Sunshine 60. A hundred people had booked out a fancy French restaurant and 10 of them in half an hour of the reservation starting at 6 p.m. By 6.30, 10 of them had got into fisticuffs. Apparently, that this is because it was a, uh, a gang-related event called the Chinese Dragons, oh. and it was a party to celebrate some of the members being released from prison. My personal theory is that one of them just wanted to get out and just punch his mate in the face for like four years and just did it immediately out of, out of getting out of jail. But yeah, and also I just love that this was an Ikebukuro because if you don't know Tokyo very well, Ikebukuro is just north of the major town of Shinjuku. And it kind of looks like Shinjuku, but it's just not very swish. Shinjuku is very exciting, and Ikebukuro is like very like boring and dull and a little <laughs> bit dodgy. And like the name also literally translates to pond bag because Ike is pond and Fukuro is bag. And it just sounds like a terrible place. But, you know, the other night, 58th story, which is very high, by the way, if you imagine 58 stories up. Yeah. Um, 100 people party, 10 of them. Just, you know what? <laughs> Screw this. We're going to have a fight. Everybody was French restaurant fighting. Um, and I like this. Yeah. And tell us the, this great safety feature. I think it's a safety feature. I hope it is. The thing that Japan is putting on self-driving cars. <sighs> Yes. So I, my colleague actually told me this morning, I missed this story and it is a little old, but it's still worth telling that Japan had put googly eyes on their self driving cars. Why? Because it's adorable. That's what I thought anyway. Like, oh, here we go, Japan being cute again, reinforcing the stereotype, but actually it is a safety measure because these are no ordinary googly eyes nate and everybody uh these googly eyes are because it's japan and again the stereotype they're very high tech they're robotic and what they're meant to do is let people who want to cross the road so say you're a pedestrian do 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 walking along and here comes a car and it's got no driver because it's a self-driving car and so you have no one to make eye contact with so you can't do the little bow with a little hand raised, be like, oh, cheers, mate, for stopping and letting me cross the road. You can't do that. Will the car start? Will the car stop? Well, I guess it started. Will it keep going? I don't know. So they put eyes on the cars, and the eyes are robotic, and they move towards whatever the car is sensing. So if the car is sensing somebody on the other side of the street, the eyes will look, look at that person. Nice. Yes. And so you're waiting across the road and you'll be like, oh, this car isn't looking at me. It's looking at somebody else. The car doesn't see me. So if I cross the road now, I'm going to be hit by the self-driving car. If the eyes are pointing at you, you know that, oh, it's kind of like a human, you know, reptilian brain eye contact thing. And you think, oh, the car sees me. It might be about to stop. And so maybe I'll cross in front of this car or what have you. But, you know, Japan, yet again, on the forefront of cuteness and technology and saving lives. That is Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up on RNZ National. During that story, a discussion 
burst out as if it were the British Parliament in here and there were accusations, there was finger pointing and there was two sides of the aisle. Katrina says, oh, okay, cool, so they've got these cars with eyes, why don't we have flying cars? To which Jeremy and I responded, we do, helicopters. And then it was, no, it's a car, it's not a car. 2101, help settle our uh, dispute this morning. Is, does a helicopter qualify as a flying car? I need you. Thank you very much, audience. Coming up after nearly three decades, Invercargill has a new mayor, and also we're going to discuss Middlemore Hospital's emergency department being found to be dysfunctional, overcrowded and unsafe. To Mid-Canterbury now, where local democracy reporting programme's Jonathan Leask has been getting his head around the new Ashburton District Council. He told me who's in and who's out. Ours was a pretty clear-cut election. It's continuity around the table. We've got the mayor back, and all the incumbents who stood got in. We've got four new councillors. Tony Todd, a first-term councillor at 75 years of age. Mm-hmm. Then we've got Phil Hooper, Richard Wilson, who's actually taken the seat of his retiring four-term father, Stuart. And Russell Ellis is back after a term off. He's the councillor that famously made an error in his nomination form and missed out in 2019, but is back around the table this year. Oh, right, so that's good. You figured that one on the way out. So there were, you, you read out there are many names. No Dame Linda Top there involved. No, so she wasn't even a close run thing uh, in the Western Ward. We had Deputy Mayor Liz McMillan and Roger Lethem, the two incumbents there, win quite convincingly. As all the, so it was very clear cut across all the wards. So there was out there. the closest run thing was in the Mayor and Community Board. There were five seats, six candidates, and I think it was five votes in the end separated uh, fifth and sixth place there. Wow. That's nice. That is tight. No one's called for a recount or anything? No, it's all pretty clear cut. And even in that Mifflin community board, it's, it's low low numbers. There's only about five, 600 votes for each candidate. So I don't think a recount would, would help anyone there. Okay. Now, um, Neil Brown, Mayor of Ashburton, I know that there's uh, obviously been talk of the uh, Christchurch Stadium being a big new fancy thing. Uh, how's that gone down w- with the Mayor? Well, as you just said, it's a Christchurch stadium, and all of a sudden there, there's talk of it being a regional stadium because it's a $150 million fiscal hole they need dug out of, and they're looking to use the rest of the region to be the spades. And Mayor Brown's not quite having it. <laughs> well, will it be a surprise to the Christchurch Mayor Phil Major that uh, your Mayor Neil Brown is saying no? I don't think it will. That said, they, they haven't actually formally come and asked any of these councils. They've, never had, they've had mayoral forums every month or so for the last few years. It's never actually been formally broached with anyone. And at the end of the day, it's a, it's a Christchurch project. Um, and Neil said that he doesn't see much benefit, if not the only benefit people will get is having to pay for the right to go to a few more concerts and rugby games. Um, <laughs> so there's no real economic benefit. And if they can't prove it, they're not even going to take it out for consultation because it's not worth it. Jonathan, that council you just described, it sounds like a, a bit of a, you know, like a, a very formal sounding council. They've, they've been there for quite a while. So I'm wondering, are there any new pressing issues for them to get to or what are the projects that they are working on at the moment for the betterment of the community? Our roads are going to be a big focus. Everyone campaigned heavily on our, our roads and the state of them and getting more funding for them. So we're not going to turn around and give 10 or $20 million to a stadium uh, 100 kilometres up the road when we, we can't get up the road to get there. Our second bridge, it's going to cost around $120 million. So if we're talking 
regionally significant projects needing funding, we might put our hat out and ask Christchurch City for some funds for that as well, if, that, <laughs> if that's how that goes. You can stand outside the stadium and whip round. Hey, uh, <laughs> tell, me, tell me about this. This sounds like an amazing thing, the real-time water monitoring project that's being proposed for Ashburton Lakes. Talk, talk me through that. Yeah, up there at the Otufarakai area, the Ashburton Lakes. So there's a lake up there called Lake Clearwater. It's probably the main one of those lakes up there, and it's not really living up to its name. In fact, it's getting quite cloudy, and it's got algal bloom and all sorts of things. And it's all the lakes and streams up there are in a bit of a state of decline. As per ECAN's testing that's just come out, they're, they're not getting any better. Mm. And Aoraki Environment Consultants, on behalf of Arafenua, looking uh, at sourcing some government Ministry of uh, Environment funding for a wee project there to put some sensors in at certain spots to provide real-time water quality monitoring data, which would be very handy rather than that sporadic, depends on who does the testing and when they do the testing sort of stuff. They'll have a constant stream of data to show the ebbs and flows of those uh, waterways. That's LDR Mid-Canterbury's Jonathan Leask. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life, we call the 18th of October. It was the birthday of Chuck Berry in 1926 and Aaron Moran in 1960. Joni Cunningham, yeah. Uh, celebrating birthdays today, Ryan Nelson, former All Whites captain, he's 45. Martina Navratilova won so many Grand Slam singles, she had to just build shelf after shelf. She won 18 of those, she's 66 today. And one of my favourites from TV, I loved that show when I was a kid, Mork and Mindy. Mindy, happy birthday Mindy, 71 today, Pam Dorber. On this day in 1851, a book came out in bookstores, no one bought it, it was called The Whale and it was written by Herman Melville and people went meh. Uh, but Moby Dick obviously is, was what that became, it only sold 3,000 copies, just over 3,000 during his lifetime and then just took off huge uh, after uh, Herman Melville died, based on a, a true story. Yeah. In 1954, Texas Instruments bought out this little box called the Regency TR1. That was the first transistor radio made in the world. And, I mean, what a beautiful thing over the years. You know, the transistor radio in summer, hey, out painting the fence, listening to cricket or baseball or whatever. There it is. Uh, congratulations to you, Texas Instruments. On this day in 1963, Felicit became the first cat in space on top of a, a French Véronique AG-1 rocket. Uh, Felicit travelled 120 miles into space for a one hour and 20 minute journey and returned to Earth by parachute and was recovered safely. She's the only cat to have been sent into space and survived. She used to be a street cat and was chosen of one of 14 cats. She had the right stuff. And on this day in 1966, uh, the Batmobile was patented. George Barris, Google George Barris and have a look at his amazing vehicle creations that he made. And the Batmobile was made uh, from a Lincoln Futura concept car and those are the days of our live happenings on the 18th of October. Joining us now from the business team, it's Anand Zaki. Kia ora, Anand, how are you? Kia ora, very well. It just got me thinking, what is the right stuff to go to space as a cat? Uh, yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> I just imagine it going, I mean, it's just scratching away, trying to come in or out. That's the thing, when they open the door to the rocket, when it wouldn't come in, you know, just stood at the door sniffing, it was terrible. Well, I'm going to work Cut on that. Cut the parachute we'll, off with the claws. Yep. Yeah, we'll find that out there as well. Hey, <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Jeremy saying just pushing things off the table into space as they just float off there. Tell me about this. Uh, what is these these magnificent four words? Responsible investing gathers pace. What is this? Yeah, so responsible uh, or ethical investing, it's taking a, a bigger share of the investment market and it's earning better returns, uh, which is uh, something uh, uh, environmentalists uh, will be very happy about. Uh, you know, we have this annual benchmark report from the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. Uh, it looks after the, that side of things in New Zealand as well. Uh, they say more firms are now committing to ethical investing. So responsible investing is basically uh, investing where you consider both financial return and social or environmental good. So the association says more investment funds are offering more quality products and they reckon that the so-called trade-off between uh, strong long-term financial returns and investing ethically is, uh, is basically a myth. And the proof uh, appears to be in the numbers. The amount invested in ethical investments almost doubled last year to $40 billion, uh, nearly 5% of which uh, was sustainably linked finance. Now, the uh, Responsible Investment Association also told us that regulators, lenders and consumers are pressuring investment funds to uh, just continue to do better on this front. And the investment funds are in turn pressuring the companies to do better. And uh, they say investment managers are also getting better, better at backing up claims uh, around the sustainability of their portfolios. Uh, and that's as we see uh, greenwashing, which you, you would have heard about, mm-hmm. go under the microscope. So, uh, look, there is a downside. New Zealand firms are still, um, according to the association, lagging behind overseas funds and holding companies to account on environmental and social issues, uh, and they're just being told to take the initiative. Um, So, look, the bigger the responsible investing becomes, the better the environmental outcomes are. Uh, Something for everyone to think about, I think. Just um, chuck us some quick detail on this as well, because it depends how I read this. Which one of these am I reading? Is it record fine for major Aussie casino or record fine for major Aussie casino? (laughs) <laughs> Look, it's a, it's a record fine for oh, okay. a, a, an Aussie <laughs> casino. Look, it's a, it's a big fine. The Star Entertainment Group, they're being fined $100 million uh, or about $111 million New Zealand dollars, that is, uh, by the New South Wales uh, an Independent Casino Commission for failing to stop money laundering at its Sydney casino. And their licence to operate has also been suspended. Uh, it's a record penalty and uh, they were announced in response to a very damning inquiry in, in the state uh, earlier this year. Uh, it style out uh, money laundering and organised crime to infiltrate their Sydney casino, uh, taking a bit of a cavalier approach to governance and at times making uh, deliberate moves to cover its tracks. Now, just out of interest... New Zealand company Sky City's Adelaide Casino is facing an independent review as well, so one to keep an eye out for. We will. Thank you very much, Ananzaki, and the business team are with you on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Let's have a look at your money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is buying 56.34 US cents, 89.57 Australian cents, 57.4 Euro cents, 49.33 British pence, 4.05 yuan, and 83.79 Japanese yen. It is 25 to 6 right now. I'm first up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. The new mayor of Invercargill is doing away with the trappings of office. No more titles like your worship.
and also the robes gone. Nobby Clark takes over the reins after nearly 27 years and I asked for his thoughts on the outgoing Mayor, Sir Tim Shadbolt. Oh, look, it's a huge service that he's given to our city over the years. When was the last person that was knighted while they were still in their role? Most politicians at the national level tend to get knighted once they finish their jobs. And so for him to be knighted while he was still in office was uh, a really true reflection on uh, how much service he's given. Well, now it's you've stepped up to have a go at this. And I was looking back through your, just through your CV, it, it's it's stunning. Served as a medic there in Vietnam. You've been yep. involved in Oranga Tamariki, stopping yep. violence, Southlands, also working there with IHC New Zealand. And I was reading that and I thought, you sound like a person who was naturally wants to be a protector or a helper or something like that when it gets this. Yep. So so where does that come from for you? Like when, Where did that you know sink into you when you were young? I don't know, but I sort of do know. In my early life, I was obviously in the armed forces, and I subsequent to that was in the prison system, and then I was a Department of Labour inspector. So they're all very autocratic, authoritarian-type roles, but then I got into social services, and I've been there ever since, and, and that's the, the caring side. I guess I've probably 20 more years ago, 25 years ago, sort of got into Buddhist philosophy, and, uh, and part of that is that you... You use your life to be able to help other people as opposed to being um, a little bit more narcissistic about things. Yeah. So, uh, I guess that's where I've drifted to. Well, I mean, one of the things you've done is you, you've you donated your kidney to someone as well, yep. uh, anonymously. Yep. Now, my wife only has one kidney, so we're very yep. big on, on on that world in our house. So, first of all, sure. wonderful generosity from you. But, again, I guess that speaks more to the philosophy that, you, that you're buying into here. Like, you know, my life can help others. Kidney thing was interesting. I was in Thailand, I don't know, twenty something years ago, and while Karen was out shopping, I was um, I sat in the temple and started talking to a monk, and the monk said to me, "You know, we can resolve the world's problems." And I said philosophically, "Well, how do you do that?" He said, "The world countries are roughly fifty percent haves and thirty percent have nots," and he said, "You know, if we could take responsibility for the well-being of one person that wasn't a family member." or related to a work role, because I was in social services, the world would be a better place. So that made me think an awful lot about what I could do with my life. So the kidney donation was one of them. I've also fronted up about half the money that was needed in Vietnam for a small school to help kids learn English so that they stay away from the sex trade, which is booming there, and get into government jobs and get into the tourism industry. So, you know, I look for opportunities to help people on a one-on-one basis. And, 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 I mean, that's what meralty is, right? I mean, you, you've got to be in there. There's probably things where, you know, you've got to think to yourself, I'm here for the good of everyone, right? You know, yep. just not for my own self-interest and stuff. Yep. So when you look around your area, tell me about what you see as, I guess, the challenges for your area in the way forward. But do you sure. also see areas in there too? Like, what what are the bits of optimism that you've got where you go, yeah, this is a great thing about where we are? Yeah, well, the, the, the things that worry me, uh, the impacts of the cost of living at the moment, it's not just hitting families that are solar income or national superannuates or people that might be on benefits. It's hitting the middle class now as well. Um, we've had some statistics recently that tell us that the average family in Invercargill has got about $140, $150 impact in the last 12 months through cost of living. That's huge to impact that on, onto family. That's petrol prices, grocery prices, power prices, cost of living prices around rent or around the mortgages. So it's huge. It's across the country, but I, I see it hitting home here. 
So that's a real struggle for me to be able to do some really creative things in the city, which I'd like to do, but be mindful that we need to keep our costs very low as far as rate increases are concerned. On the positive side of things, uh, we've got the potential of a new hydrogen plant being uh, developed here in Southland. That'll be about 25 times bigger than any other plant in the world. So it's huge, about $5 billion. And hydrogen's the fuel of the future as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Gets away from the fossil fuel stuff. Two new uh, salmon farms, deep sea water salmon farms, both going through the consent process. A salmon hatchery on land. We've got oak mills. We've got space ops that track satellites. We've got data bank and the data centre coming as well. Like These are huge for us. And really, really exciting. So that that's the flip side of the good stuff. And, and the other stuff is Invercargill has always been and still is one of the most cost-effective places to live. Very small city to be able to get around. People are very friendly. House prices are some of the best in the country. So it's a good place for a family to get started. Yeah. We've been traditionally a service centre for uh, the agricultural centre and been a little bit conservative. Some would call doer. So we need to put a bit of sparkle back into the city. So that's, that's part of the challenge going forward in the next three or four years. That is the new mayor of Invercargill, Nobby Clark, who you you might notice his voice was a bit rough because Nobby got up and battled through. He had a, he had a cold, but he thought, no, I want to talk to you. Well, so there he is, Nobby Clark, and we thank him very much for his appearance. 19 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're with First Up here at RNZ National. Still to come, Sarah Dalton, who is the head of doctors, uh, the Doctors' Union, joins us to talk about the dysfunctional Middlemore Hospital Emergency Department. And it's Tuesday morning, so uh, Nicola Willis is here. The professionals of RNZ are up after six. Uh, it's morning reports this morning, and it's uh, Guy Espinosa who's with me. Kia ora, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, today we're looking, Nathan, at the inflation numbers expected to fall from a 32-year high. So those numbers are out today. It'll take a while to trickle through, so that you can afford to buy cabbage and lettuce again. <laughs> but um, but thank goodness, <laughs> yeah, finally, right? right. right. So so there's um, there's a, 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 a cabbage at the end of the tunnel, if, if, you, if you want to put it that way. Well, we speak. To Don Brash, like who um, spent 14 years as a Reserve Bank Governor and knows a tour thing about inflation targeting, so it'd be interesting to hear from him. We're, we're piling into this Middlemore story, the mm. Middlemore ED, that is a, uh, a really uh, damning report. We can actually speak to Andrew Little about whether this is symptomatic of the entire health system at, at the moment, so he'll be on the programme. Wayne Brown won't be. He's still uh, refusing to, to, to do media interviews. He'll be but, out working. Uh, what's that? He'll be out working. Well, what's the time? Uh, well, no, he doesn't start. He starts at 9 to 3, doesn't he? And then with the weekends off, I'm told. Um, but we'll, we'll have reaction to this. This is a big deal, him, him telling uh, Watercare to stop work on three waters. Wow, that's becoming a real lightning rod issue, isn't it? Mm. And we're also looking uh, closely at the UK today. Uh, this entire tax and um, economic package has been wound back by the new Chancellor. When I was talking to Henry Riley, uh, our um, UK correspondent this morning, I was like, this is the fourth Chancellor you and I have had in our discussions they just one after the other or the other. Yeah, it's just a revolving door. And they're yeah. back where they started because they've wound back almost all of the package that they started with a couple of weeks ago. So um, whether Liz Truss can survive this, that was watching the debate this morning and uh, she didn't turn up for the first hour. So there's some there's some uh, suspicion about exactly what uh, how long she can last. So we'll be looking at that too. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, uh, look, you'll no doubt be aware, if you've been to the supermarket recently, the cost of food remains very high. In fact, the latest Stats NZ 
data shows it's had a 13-year high. With some parents struggling to feed their kids, I asked National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis what the National Party thinks can be done. It is a real worry hearing those stories that we will, we've heard today with a food bank being raided for food. Mm. Kids can, saying that they're now having to donate food to thousands more children across the schools they work with because they're seeing so much need in their communities. And these stories are very concerning. And I think what it shows us is the real human price of inflation. You know, we hear inflation and it sounds like an economic term, but actually what it is is prices rising faster than wages. And that's putting people into hardship. It's taking them backwards. And it's a real concern to us all. So we need to address the underlying drivers of inflation by getting those economic fundamentals right. Well, we'll get to that in a sec. I'm just wondering here, so what do you see as the role of government here? Because, I mean, I guess it's not really up to the government to step into a private business and say, you need to drop the price on that or you can only charge this amount of dollars for that good, right? I don't think that's the role of government. What the role of government is, is to get the economic settings and foundations right so that inflation comes back under control and so that wages are rising faster than prices. That's been the case in the past, but now for two years, that has not been the case. And that's why so many people are finding it so tough. So the things the government can do, we would have the Reserve Bank focused on a single job of maintaining price stability and inflation mandate. We would stop adding costs to businesses. This isn't the time to be adding new taxes to businesses, particularly, you know, thinking of a tax for farmers that will just get passed on. We would be making sure that we weren't having too much government spending fueling inflation and the economy. We'd be reducing the regulatory burden. We'd be making sure we had enough workers and we would be adjusting tax brackets to allow for all that inflation that's been occurring. So it's a tough ball, isn't it, at the moment being here? Do you see the recent steps taken by the government then to try and rein in supermarket prices? Do you just see those and go, those just aren't working? I think we're yet to see whether it will work. I'm a big believer in competition and healthy competition in a market, meaning that shoppers will get good prices. And the Commerce Commission clearly found that we have a duopoly operating in New Zealand and that steps can be taken to improve the competition. So I think we need to wait and see. Ideally, I'd like to see a third entrant into the New Zealand supermarket sector because I think at that point you'd get more competition in a genuine and substantive way. But look, the other thing is, it's other things that are adding to prices at the moment. It's not just about those supermarkets. It's the costs that farmers are facing. You know, they complain a lot about regulations. Maybe we need to listen to them because it's fruit and vegetables that are going up faster than anything else. They went up around 18% in the past quarter. So that's not about what's going on in Ukraine. That's about what's going on at home. Your Taranaki King Country MP Barbara Kuriga, she's resigned the portfolios of agriculture, biosecurity, food safety due to the conflict of interest there and uh, obviously this was to do with their sons um, being charged there with animal cruelty. Just wondering, the MPs being vetted, is, you know, this, she, I guess she would have been before Samuel Findell uh, with that there but um, the MPs, they're being vetted now caref- more carefully before being handed significant poly- uh, portfolios like that because, you know, that's not a good relation, is it? <laughs> Look, there's two separate issues here. One is the issue that was on the public record that Barbara had been transparent about, which was that her son had been charged and found guilty of animal welfare offences. It was her son. 
It wasn't her. And that was known, and that was not about her conduct or her behaviour. And so it was felt appropriate that she could be in the primary industries portfolio. What's occurred subsequently is that Christopher Luxon has had brought to his attention the fact that subsequent to those offences, Barbara Kuriger had been in an ongoing succession of emails and correspondence with MPI about the way in which that prosecution had taken place. That clearly presents a conflict of interest when Barbara Kuriger is the primary industry spokesperson. So I'm finding out about that. Christopher Luxon investigated, sat down with Barbara, and she did the right thing and tendered her resignation from those portfolios. Right. Another thing in the news, TVNZ, RNZ merger. If, if that happens before the next election and then National goes on to win, we were just curious at work, actually. It's a bit of a selfish question. Do, do, you, <laughs> do you disband the new entity, like even if we've already moved our desks and changed our letterheads and stuff? I'm sure I'm like the people at your work, which is I really hope it doesn't come to that. Because TVNZ and RNZ are completely distinct organisations with different cultures, different personalities, different voices. And I think in merging them, we would lose something pretty significant. Uh, And it would also cost the country $370 million. So that's actually what the Select Committee is hearing from a wide range of submitters at the moment. So we're hopeful that the government will press pause on its plans. I've not seen any support for this idea. It's not clear where it's coming from or why it's a priority. So I hope it doesn't come to that, Nathan. Mm. Uh, What we've said is we completely oppose the changes. We hope on coming into government, they aren't in place because there's certainly we would like a separate TVNZ and a separate RNZ. Okay. Um, I think the $370 million, Tracy Martin answered that uh, on the weekend, actually, which on News Hub, which I thought was a fantastic interview. Her, her breakdown is different than just saying it's a 370. But finally, a, an independent report that came out Monday this week described Middlemore Hospital's emergency department as dysfunctional, overcrowded and unsafe. And this certainly isn't confined to Middlemore. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I found reading that report, uh, well, the summary of that report, really shocking. Uh, And, of course, the story of the individual woman involved is quite heartbreaking, and my thoughts go out to her family and everyone who was involved in her care. Because what's clear to me is that the doctors and nurses and orderlies and people working at Middlemore Hospital are going above and beyond, doing an incredibly good job under incredibly trying circumstances. And that real problem here Mm. is there simply aren't enough doctors and nurses in that emergency ward, nor other emergency rooms throughout the country. And that's why I find it unconscionable that the government doesn't just stop its stubborn policy and allow immigrant nurses to enter this country and go straight into permanent residency. They need to change those immigration settings. They should have done it yesterday. People are literally being put at risk, and it needs to change. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. It is six and a half at two six. The emergency department at New Zealand's largest hospital, Middlemore, has been labelled an unsafe environment for both patients and staff. This was amongst the damning conclusions of an independent report into the death of a patient in June. The woman left the emergency department without being seen after being told it would take hours. The five-page report by an unidentified fellow from the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine describes Middlemore as dysfunctional, overcrowded and unsafe. Joining me now is the Executive Director of the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists. It is Sarah Dalton. Sarah, thank you very much for being here. This news is horrible, but does it come as a surprise? 
Kevin Nathan. Um, unfortunately, it's not a surprise. And um, yes, it's not a safe place for staff or patients quite a lot of the time. Unfortunately, that is the case for a number of emergency departments around New Zealand. But if we look at Middlemore, back in 2018, all of the then DHBs in the northern region developed um, a long-term business case explaining that we actually need a whole new hospital in South Auckland. There's no way the Middlemore site can continue to deliver to the number of patients they're expected to see, both in the emergency and general medicine services. So, so there's actually a recommendation that went several years ago um, that we need to build a whole new hospital somewhere in South Auckland. Yeah, just to, um, to, for listeners, in the report there, it says 200 patients waiting there. This is in an apartment, what, with 151 spaces. There were only 30 physical seats, 46 of them standing around. So obviously not a high enough capacity. That's the overcrowding there at Middlemore. I know you mentioned there it would be better if there was a bigger hospital in South Auckland to go with it. But this overcrowding at Middlemore, is that representative of other hospitals in New Zealand too? Yeah, it is. So the Palmerston North Emergency Department, for example, was was designed and built to see about 17,000 patients a year. They see over 50,000 patients a year. I could talk about Whangarei, Nelson, Hawke's Bay, Dunedin, Invercargill. Probably I could list all of them. Um, That is business as usual these days if you need to um, attend an emergency department. It's going to be busy. It's going to be overcrowded. And you may be in for a very long wait. I'd say so. I mean, I was, I've written here, that seems like a really useless question, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you think it can be solved by next winter? No. Right. Have, Sorry about that. No, 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 look, honestly, no, no, that's why we want the answer. Uh, well, then how do we take steps to even solve this? I mean, do we just need to just frankly build more hospitals somehow? It is multifactorial, right, but emergency departments are the crunch point where unmet need in the community or people who've been seen in the community and been referred to the hospital for good reason to be seen meet hospitals that are already full to bulging and there's what we call bed blocks, so they can't move enough people out of the main hospital to create space for these new inpatients to be admitted. And so it's, it's one of those wicked problems. Some of it's workforce and staffing. Sometimes it's some of it's physical hospital spaces. And some of it is that larger thing of social and commercial determinants of health that mean more of the population gets sick, that, that, it, that is actually preventable disease and preventable unwellness. Um, part of it is probably us having a better conversation about taxation and how much money we invest in our health system, and that's not something people like talking about. No. So tax cut, probably not a good idea. Tell me this, uh, Te Whatu Ora, which is New Zealand Health, they're the ones that have taken over from the DHBs for people listening. So they've released a statement acknowledging the grief of the woman's, uh, of the woman's loved ones. And it says Middlemore is one of the many emergency departments which has raised concerns. I'm just wondering here, just you know, this has just come in, this new entity instead of the DHBs. Has it had, has it had an opportunity to address these issues? No, they're barely walking it, you know. 1st of July was the official start date for Te Whatu Order. We don't even have a full complement of um, executive leadership in place yet. Uh, they do have a huge job in front of them, and while there are some benefits that are to be gained from the new system, if it continues to be underfunded, it will fail. And so that's that kind of elephant in the room, I suppose. How much are we as a country prepared to put into our health system? Because even if we're looking for efficiencies, the blunt truth is we don't fund it sufficiently right now. 
Yeah. Um, Sarah, that was thank you very much for that information, everybody. A lot to take on board, um, and that is uh, Sarah Dalton, who was from the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, so pretty much the doctors' union. So, uh, Te Fatuora, sorry, New Zealand Health says it's carrying out a national review to assess areas which most urgently need to be addressed ahead of next winter. Uh, just finally, some of your feedback that's come in. Uh, lovely Nobby Clark interview says Barbara from Auckland. There's uh, another one. Yet yeah, Nicola Willis in the National Party oppose increasing the minimum wage. Another one, Nathan, it's a squinting modifier when a sentence can be read two ways, i.e. listening to loud music slowly gives me a headache. I'm pleased you said that because I squinted when I read it. So that's quite good. Thank you very much, audience. It's been wonderful to be with you today. Morning Report is next with Guy on and Corin. We're leaving you with some cat jazz. This is First Up. We're back in your ears. Ah, boy.